to School Psych Podcast for a very special episode. Tonight, we are speaking with a wonderful return guest, Dr. Sonia Luther. And before I introduce her, I would just like to take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Med Travelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental in finding the placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That is why we are proud to partner with Med Travelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of a W-2 employment status, along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options. Med Travelers is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school site. Thanks so much. So welcome. We usually broadcast live um, and look for comments. So this is a little new for us, but it is a Friday afternoon actually. And so we figured everybody's busy at work. <laughs> and so we are going to record this wonderful episode so needed with Dr. Luther, who is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit AC Group, co-founder and and Chief Research Officer at AuthenticConnections.com, or company, co, <laughs> and Professor Emerita at Columbia University's Teachers College. After receiving her PhD from Yale University in 1990, she served on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry and the Child Study Center at Yale. Between 1997 and 2013, she was at Columbia University's Teachers College, where she also served as senior advisor to the provost. Between 2014 and 2019, she was the foundation professor of psychology at Arizona State University. Dr. Luther's research involves vulnerability and resilience among various populations, including youth in poverty, children in, in families affected by mental illness, and youth and adults especially mothers, in high-achieving, pressured communities. So welcome, Dr. Luther. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yes, my pleasure. And Sonia, please. Oh, thank you. Sonia's good, yeah. Sonia's good, okay. Um, I always have trouble with that because... Oh, if you have trouble, then go with Dr. Luther. Whatever's comfortable for you. <laughs> no, I will try to remember. Yeah. Uh, so we today are talking about something that is so important. For school psychologists and other school mental health professionals like school counselors and school social workers and that is to answer the question who is caring for the carers mm -hmm. and we um, know by experience that over the last couple of years things um, in our roles in our professional roles at work have been not only more and more sort of um, crucial and important to our students and our teachers and our communities, but um, to it has they has also been very sort of pressurized and sometimes overwhelming because needs have been so great needs for support in school and, and caring for you know whole children and their mental and behavioral and academic health. So I, I thought maybe it would be good to start with, I know you've done a lot of research in schools over the last couple of years. I wonder if you could just share with us what you found about how people are doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, first let me say I'm <laughs> delighted to be back with you. Um, uh, how people are doing, let's start with the kids. 
uh, in the research we did at Authentic Connections, essentially what we found, uh, Rebecca, Rebecca, what would you prefer? Rebecca's fine. Rebecca's fine, thank you. Uh, what we found was that right when COVID hit in April of uh, 2020, we found a decrease of uh, rates of clinically significant symptoms among adolescents. And then it started to rise again as the fall semester started. And I assume the reason is probably because their very busy pack schedules got dialed back a bit, you know, uh, fewer activities to run back and forth from and grades changing to past grade and so on and so forth. And then, of course, it was no longer fun when you got to find out this was, this was going on a bit long. Um, so those rates have gone back up. That's what's going on with the kids. And if you think about what's going on with us, the grown-ups who must take care of these kids, we also have been following uh, faculty and staff at schools, and maybe uh, 4,000 plus over time since the start of COVID. And the, the, sh the short version of the story is that Burnout levels were serious burnout, not a little bit burnout, emotional exhaustion at work were at about 20% when COVID hit. They too went down a bit and went back, back up. And I think uh, by uh, the summer, we're at 33%. And one in three of faculty and staff were reporting serious levels of burnout. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that as we come to the uh, fall assessments, it's going to be. My guess is it's going to be higher, but uh, hopefully it'll be lower. But just it, given just the uncertainty uh, Becca, that we're living with, that alone is something that elicits just so much anxiety in all of us. So we're preparing for uh, all we can do to help uh, the stress that is going to be somewhat inevitable, at least among some of us. Yeah. Wow. The, the numbers are, are staggering. And then, you know, just connecting with colleagues across states, um, they just resonate. You know, I, I think that the uncertainty um, plus plus the need has really um, driven up uh, probably um, unhelpful behaviors like overworking or, um, or over-functioning, <laughs> I might say, you know, like just trying to respond to everyone and, and trying maybe um, outside of our outside of what we know in terms of our basic self-care like need for downtime yeah. family time so there's a, uh, something that has worried me for a while now and I think I did, did an interview with uh, our MSNBC this was around May I think at that time I was beginning to get concerned about the level of anger that was growing in communities. Uh, among grown-ups and kids, but certainly among parents um, and, and school faculty and stuff, around masks and no masks, around you know a, a protocols of safety, around issues of race and equity and uh, and, and so on. Uh, so what I was concerned about was the anxiety is one thing, and the sadness and grief, which again was inevitable given the losses that uh, so many. Uh, faced, experienced. This is more scary to me, the underlying resentment and anger that was bubbling in communities. And from what I see now, there's an article about kids in schools uh, where there's a lot of acting out going on. You know, I hear about this TikTok challenge where there's destruction of school property and so on. So my great fear is that this has gone on so long 
everybody's been pushed to the limit and it's almost like a pressure cooker going off it's just too much and this kind of uh, well in some cases acting out the substance abuse rates have gone up and obviously concerns about anxiety and depression among kids and grown-ups so i think where i'm going with all of this is to say this is not an if this is not a maybe this is a this is an is it is happening you know people would say uh, mental illness is the next wave of covid well it's not the next wave it's here it's, it's happening right now so our job then is to be very systematic and focused in trying to address this in, in a prevention mode rather than trying to fix things when people are already you know sort of at their limit yeah that makes a lot of sense and and i wonder before we, we get into the specifics of what, what those prevention strategies can be like, you think, as you've spent so much of your career studying resilience, that the particulars of this this crisis, not, not only COVID-19, but the social justice crises in our, in our country and um, across the world, and every difficult thing that has come up has challenged one source of one potential source of resilience, our sense of belonging, mm -hmm. our, our sense of, um, you know, competence at our work it, it, with challenges that are, you know, way up here. It's, it's hard to feel like you're making a difference sometimes. So all these factors that typically will, would support um, autonomous decision making, for example, like that would normally support a sense of resilience um, and well-being. We can't have that because None of us are public health experts, and so we're relying on information coming from all these other sources, yet feeling so disconnected. So what do you notice about how resilience was built before mm -hmm. current history and what's happening now? Yeah, so you've heard me say this, I'm sure, before, Becca. Um, when you look at the science of resilience across the last maybe uh, 60, 70 years, there's one message that's most important, uh, which is resilience rests fundamentally on relationships. It's always the most important. Your coping skills and your optimism and stick to itiveness and such are, are important, but nothing, nothing like these safe, supportive network of relationships. So now keep that on one side. <clears throat> on the other side, you look at what I said about depression. I just pick depression for right now. Um, the all of us, I think, have felt the sadness of losing out on connections, uh, rituals, uh, celebrations, and not to mention the deaths that are happening or have happened all over the world. So what happens when you get depressed? If a couple of things. One is you might tend to withdraw from people, shut down. Another one is that you're, you get more short-tempered. Your views become shorter, right? And uh, this then leads to you and I having a perfectly convivial conversation and we get into a difference of opinion and what normally I would have taken in my stride and say, Anna, Becca's sounding a little off today. I am that much more reactive to and I say, so what is she saying? And I come back to you with a snippy or terse reaction to which you are more sensitized to react. So what you said, the question you asked was very prescient, were a very important one. Uh, and this is my great fear, that the fabric of our connections, our relationships, has been threatened so badly and continues to be threatened so badly that we are 
in danger of losing that very foundation that of relationships within families or partners i mean rates of uh, domestic abuse have gone up child abuse so relationships at home at school in communities all of these we have to be very watchful for um, in trying to mend them and keep them as, as sturdy as possible on your other point the sense of efficacy you're you're right there are so many things that we all have to ha have had to learn I mean, a simple thing like navigating how to turn off our notifications and you've got new software and so on. When you're used to feeling competent at what you do and you're suddenly in this situation where there's all this stuff that it, it, it throws me for a loop sometimes. I mean, there are times when I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation for a big audience and I do my screen share and I mess it up and it's not on, it's not on the, you know, what is called a full view. Uh, full screen view, so you can and have them tell me, oh, we can see the back of you. Says, oh my goodness, this, I must have done this ten times, and I still forget how. So, I mean, I'm I'm making light of it, but I think we've all experienced it. We're in a situation that obviously no one has ever been in before, and it has called for not just the health issues, uh, you know, safety protocol that all of your schools have to follow, but a different skill set with it. So you're learning a different new skill set in the midst of all this tension, anxiety, and depression, and so on. Yeah, and I, I feel like we a lot of us were very aware of that when school closures first happened, but now there's this sense that oh, we should be like things are yeah. somewhat improved. You know, in Connecticut, we're back um, in person. We were back. We were in person last year, and this year we are able to have less. Uh, physical distance, etc. So we're closer to um, normal functioning. So there, there may be this sense of okay, so I should behave normally. I, I can do my job as I normally would. And we've forgotten that we still just learned all this new stuff. You know, it's like still these are new skills. And, and I'm with you on the Zoom presentations and yeah. making sure you're muted or unmuted. Like it's still yeah. not. It's still, um, some of it is routine because we're on Zoom so often, but some of it is still very on shaky ground. Right? Let me add to that, though, because there's another factor that we're not thinking about. It's as though we're saying, all right, now things are back to normal. Now be your old self. Be your pre-COVID self. And my answer to you is, how the heck can I be that? With all that I have experienced in the last 18 months, uh, including rifts with people, including tensions with people that one has had to work hard to repair, some of which have been, some of which have not been. So much has been called off on, upon. We have been called upon to do so much. It's like saying, okay, you broke your knee or you broke your ankle, but now you're back to school and walk as you normally would. So hang on, what about fixing all of that? So this is what, it's not just, you can't say that we, we People are unmasked and back to school and in person, so everything should be the way it was. That is so short-sighted. We are human beings, and what we have, humanity has been traumatized. We have all been traumatized. So to just look at the work performance issues and say, well, you should have your curriculum figure, or you school psychologist should have your testing on. Hey, hey, I'm, I'm still broken a little bit. I need to be fixed before I can go back and do my job well. especially. If that job involves caring for other people, which is why I'm so 
invested in working with school counselors, school psychologists, physicians, nurses, anyone whose job it is to take care of other people over and above for many taking care of their own kids and families at home. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And I think that, you know, as um, mental health professionals, we do get some training in just the importance and responsibility of self-care. But what I've noticed about that lately is if we think of self-care as on, like that's something I have to do by myself, it's just another stressor because I don't have time to do one other thing for myself. Um, And so the the importance, as you're saying, of our relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, But so how do you, what do you notice kind of works? Because Mm -hmm. it seems to be happening. And some school psychologists do have um, departments in their district where they are able to meet sometimes and and have, you know, um, support from each other. Um, In some schools, they're quite fewer than a department, maybe one or two. And you know, for some people, they're alone in a building or they don't even have an actual building. They travel from building to building um, it, within a district. Uh, so it's really challenging to, to make those connections and find support. Yeah. Have you seen models that work? Or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I resorted to, uh, when COVID started, I resorted to doing what I know works because there's science behind it, which is the authentic connection groups that we had, by the time COVID hit, we had uh, at least three papers that were published or two that were trials with uh, physicians and nurse leaders at the Mayo Clinic, one here in Arizona and one in Minnesota. And the third one was actually on virtual groups. And so these papers had already been published by the time COVID uh, happened. I went back to, uh, first of all, <laughs> getting a group for myself going because I was feeling so shaky by, by May. Um, but in addition to that, I reached out to a bunch of people in school, people like yourself, who I, if, if had I known you then, I would have asked you to be part of this. <clears throat> but people that who, are, who I think of uh, better as the mental health pillars of their communities, uh, pillars of mental health right in their communities. And I basically invited them. I said, look, I'd like to do groups with you all. Everybody is struggling horribly. One of the things I was, I said all the time, and which is we're all somewhere between here and here, which is this is okay. And this is unraveling on any given day. This is where we're at. Nobody's feeling all happy and upbeat and isn't life wonderful. So I reached out to them and we got a group of actually mostly counselors. And I think there was one division here, but the rest were all counselors or psychologists, social workers. And we met pretty much through the year, uh, just doing what authentic connections groups are all about, not the not the sort of particular sessions, but just what's on your mind and being there. What these groups do generally and did during COVID, the ones that I was able to pull together, is basically offering love and support. Uh, you know, it's what you said was so um, was brilliant. You do not want to be told, "Hey, do do more self care." You do not want to be told, and you should not be told. You all work too damn hard to begin with. You give so much of yourselves that to add to on top of that one more task, which is now figure out what your uh, how you're going to free yourself up or how you're going to get relaxed, or is wrong. 
our it's our job, those of us who've done the science, who study resilience, so it's our job to bring to you what we know is healing and that'll bring you back up. And um, that has been the approach. Uh, that's something I've been working with. And at this point, as I follow what's going on in schools and, and obviously in healthcare as well, uh, in our nonprofit, acgroups.org, we have built up the number of uh, people who can be uh, sort of facilitators, trained and supervised and so on. So that, and the, the fact that we had evidence uh, on the virtual groups working pre-COVID is uh, very helpful for me as a scientist. I don't like to offer something that I don't have uh, evidence on that you know, as, as being effective. So having that in my back pocket is very helpful. And I should add, also helpful because hearing back from people now uh, that they're still meeting. The groups that we ran maybe two years ago because yesterday on LinkedIn I got a message from my pediatrician group one of the women there and said so nice to hear about AC groups and how you're doing and we are still meeting and thank you for all that you're doing so the magic here is really not so much about the facilitator or even about the session contents necessarily the mm -hmm. magic is really connecting people in real life so that as you know good psychotherapy heals but nothing feels like love in real life mm -hmm. and this is essentially what is organized for you is done for you is organizing these very nurturing supportive reliable dependable groups so that it's not a you don't have to go around organizing you sign up for them and it's there mm -hmm. and it's, it's it's vetted and it, so so that is my my sort of approach to how we can address what's going on and what's still ahead of it sounds so wonderful because originally what we tried to do was um, our men school mental health team tried to kind of support the rest of the community, the teacher community and admin, and um, which is which was I think important and and hopefully useful, but it it wasn't it was also just more work, you know, more support that we are giving. Um, so to find that for ourselves, I think would have been or would be so powerful. Um, is there, is there though a format that you found like a, a sequence of, um, of activities or the way you um, structure the group that, that you found? Yeah, there, there is at the time when COVID first hit, uh, Becca, it seemed like almost like uh, going into the regular sessions, the way they're written up, seemed a little far-fetched just because the trauma level was so high and the anxiety. So I suspended that. I stopped doing the real sessions, if you will, uh, for that time, but we've gone back to them now. And so there are a total of 12 sessions, and we have people sign up maybe for six at a time or, or 12 if they want. And each of these sessions is has a bunch of little exercises all of these, all sessions, the topics are things that are around relationships. So, for example, obstacles to reaching out, uh, uh, issues of shame, or how one can deal with anger. So, uh, uh, there's some skills stuff in, built in there, you know, training thought and cognition and so on, but it's mostly around relationships. So, the, the way it works is like that you are in this room, but it's usually uh, the counselor group was mixed you know, men and women. 
but in general, it's been groups of moms or dads and so on. Whatever, when you share what you're going through, you see these four or five people in the room, you see their faces with the kindness and the support that has developed in the group. That is enormously fulfilling. So that happens over a course of the 12 sessions. But there's an added component there, right from the get-go, which is that each of you in the group has to connect with what you call your go-to, identify and connect with your go-to person. Who is a person with whom you feel relatively safe? So the way it works is, let's say today in group, we're talking about obstacles to connecting, reaching out. And we discuss it in group and everybody has their 15 minutes, 20 minutes of this and that. Then you have to go home and discuss it before the next meeting with your go-to person and come back and report on what that conversation was like. So now what happens? You're essentially developing the intimacy and closeness and support within the group, but also developing it outside with your one or two go-to people so that they will be there for you in your everyday life once the intervention is over. Does that make sense? It does. And I love that strategy. I love that idea of of taking that powerful work that happens within a, a warmly connected and structured group and then bringing it into the day-to-day. Because, again, a lot of times that's not what's what happens. You feel, you know, probably supported and wonderful in the group, but then you go back um, into an environment where you, where you may not or where it is still difficult. Um, so you get that real-life practice. That's... Yeah. To, to talk to me, I'm going to ask you a question, okay. which is, why would mothers, why would clinicians, why would mothers put themselves so on the back burner? Yeah. And we, we, I've asked you this sort of by email before. Yeah. I've had women say, I know this is important. I know I need it. I know I could be so helped by this. And yet I feel like I can't sign up for one hour a week, to which I say, one hour seriously to maintain your mental health by a proven effective thing that's going to be all about love yeah. you're saying one hour a week you can't do um how, you do that for gardening or to go into the gym or you know whatever you do for leisure why would people be resistant to that when it's a, you know when it's being offered readily now you help me understand this because then maybe it will help your listeners and viewers understand why they might be drawn to it and yet would hesitate and say, I oh, it's too self-indulgent or I don't have the time. Or right. no, no, my question is to you. I give it back to you. Yeah, you know, I think that well, for mothers in particular, the list of the list of but buts, but I don't have time. But that uh, I, you know, I don't want to spend money on myself. I've got to you know think about college tuition in the future or whatever like not that I'm not laughing because they're not real but I think mothers in particular often put themselves so far left that the list of buts but how do I take this time for myself I feel selfish it feels like I'm disregarding my responsibilities or, or the people who need me um, and I also think that school psychologists and school counselors and, and school social workers feel in some ways, like they, they're parenting in some ways, their, their communities, their teachers, their faculty. And we had, um, uh, I forget which group it was, but it was um, a group of psychologists, political psychologists in New York State. They were doing research during um, the start of the pandemic about having groups for teachers. Mm-hmm. 
and they had done a first round of, of groups and they had measured the effectiveness by, by the report of the teachers who participated and they did find that it was helpful and they offered it um, to everyone in our group, any, any other teacher group, if they wanted to do it, it was six weeks, it was one evening per, um, per week uh, for an hour each time and it was free. So like the but I can't afford it or but I don't want to spend the money on myself wasn't even there. And we shared it out with our communities, a bunch of us in, in different schools. Nobody took them up on it, not one person. And I, I was really surprised because I thought this is fantastic. This is a real tried and true thing that we can offer people a place to talk to other teachers. We can offer teachers a place to connect and um, feel like they're not alone and, and get support. Yeah. And they just didn't. And so I wonder if it's, you know, the time factor is real. And it. I think it's only real, though, because our boundaries are so blurred. And so, yes, if you're working until, um, you know, 7 p.m., you don't want to do a 7.30 group because you haven't seen your family all day or you, or, or you have and you haven't paid attention to them, maybe. You know, so um, I think it's a function. The resistance is probably just a function of this burnout. You know, it's like a self I see what saying, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like like depression. When you're depressed, the antidote is to be with other people, and yet when you're depressed, you tend to shut down and withdraw from other people. So you're you're quite right. There's and it, it could be partly I'm just so damn exhausted. I can't think of taking on one more thing. Yeah. To which I would say, look, in the National Academies of Science, that big report in 2019, they have said this is uh, incontrovertibly that if you want your children to be doing well in the face of adversity, the single most important thing is for you, the primary caregiver, to be doing well. And what that means is that your mental health, your well-being needs to be good. And how that happens is by make, making sure that you have these ongoing uh, supportive connections with, with, with people in your own personal life. Um, so, I mean, I've been there, I've been busy as a mother, still I, I am busy, but. I think if you stop and take a step back and say, if I truly have my family's well-being at heart, which all of us do, I think as moms, we want our kids, our, our partners, our families to be well. If you look at that and say, all of that comes back to me. And this is not about mother bashing. It's about giving mothers credit for the gargantuan task that we do and saying, it is such a big task and so much rests on you that it is absolutely critical that you get replenished and filled up in order to do what it is that you're called upon to do. Yeah. So, I, I mean, put briefly, I, I tell mothers, you know, if you don't, don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your kids. Yes. I, I think that it is important to get that message out there because I think too, you know, American culture is a little bit of, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, yeah. you know, um, do do it independently, and I think there is a lot of stigma on around not only asking for help but saying that I'm not okay. Yeah, this is not. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. But while you were speaking, something else occurred to me, which is issues of confidentiality. And during COVID, I ran two types of groups, and one word that was counselors' group was counselors across the country who didn't know each other. Um, Others were like a bunch of faculty within a school or nurses within a school and so on and so forth. 
and I found really that it was the cross, like a school heads group or uh, the ones that were cross institutions where you don't bump into each other every day in the hallways. Those groups tended to get together more quickly and cohesively than the ones that were in-house. Now, that said, our, remember our first two trials at Mayo here in, in Minnesota were all within the same institution, right? And so mm -hmm. it's not as though it cannot happen. But I think the benefit right now, because we're all so raw, the benefit of saying, here's someone I can talk to who's living in Oregon, and or, you know, there's no chance that we're going to cross each other's paths anytime soon. Um, I feel that much. And yet, this is a safe and a kind and a good person who uh, makes me feel better when mm -hmm. I'm vulnerable. I think that, that has helped greatly in terms of not being quite so hesitant about showing where you're hurting. Yes. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me. And then it maybe have a trickle down effect where if I can be vulnerable with strangers who are creating this warm space, then maybe I can tell my coworker, you know, like set a boundary or, or tell my coworker, I, I really need help with this because I, I, I'm not going to meet this timeline on my own or, or whatever, you know, like, those are vulnerable things to say, but if we get practice, yeah. <laughs> maybe they become easier because then we start to see how much more, not only just like um, productive and efficient we could be if we have support, but how much better we can feel about in all aspects of our life. So, so just picking up on that theme, that can we say how much better we can feel, there's another issue that comes up, which actually this woman called Judy Warner, who was a junk director and lives she used to write a column for the New York Times and I was speaking to her about moms because this is back in early two thousands. And she brought up this interesting point that when you tell people this this makes you feel good, this takes away some of your pain and makes you feel loved and held and nurtured. So what if I dissolve into a puddle and I can't put myself back together? What if I start depending on you for this? And how will I manage on my own? Uh, and there is an answer to that very good question, which is that that's why you have your outside go-to committees being built up alongside while the groups are, number one. Number two, as I just said, people in the group stay in touch. They sleep, maybe they won't do every week, they'll do once in two weeks or once a month, but they're in touch by a text and so on. So anyone got a bit is having an issue or a crisis with health, they're all there for you. Yeah. So within group and outside group, you have these networks built up so you will not be alone. And the third thing is, or the second, I've lost track of how many things, but is that uh, in the groups themselves, everything is done very slowly. This is not jump into the deep end and be vulnerable. This is what I call baby steps. So you start by little steps at a time, allowing yourself to share what's What's aching? You don't have to give it all at one go, but letting a little bit of that ache out and saying, I just feel so disappointed by my child right now. Mm -hmm. oh, tell me more. I can't. Today, that's about all I can do. Maybe next time. Yeah. So that's the approach. You will share what you're comfortable with. And the facilitators, these are all trained people. Um, uh, it's not psychotherapy, but they're trained to say, for example, we don't let anything become so raw in the room that you leave the room feeling raw, right? So the, the task is to come together in authentic real ways 
about issues that are meaningful to you and including things that are hurtful or troublesome. But we don't get to a place where you feel falling apart. Right. Which you maybe would do an individual therapy, for example, and you fall apart and you help them. Here it is, gently, slowly, a little bit of a t at a time, and all the, all the while building up the support network around you. Wow. It does, and it makes me wonder. I mean, there there is a, also a lot of um, resistance out in the world to therapy. I think the average number of sessions that a that a, a new person um, gets when they go to see, seek therapy is is one or not the average, but the, like a lot, yeah, a lot of people just drop out after the first one, and so I think the, the people who are sort of already sold on the benefit aren't resistant. They're the ones that that can really stick with it and allow themselves to just uh, enter the process. But mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you know just sort of, again, this mental health stigma in a way. Well, yes, I mean, even put mental health aside, because this is not therapy. These groups are literally support groups. And I would ask anybody, who in this day and age does not need support? That's right. Who doesn't? I don't know a single human being saying, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, perhaps you have a very loving family and so on, and a very loving spouse. So one of the principles in the group, uh, group spectrum is that your go-to person cannot be your spouse or your significant other. And there's a reason for that is because we have so many expectations already on that one relation, put on that one relationship, that you need to outsource this, give it to outside. And it turns out in our research, we found that having these supportive relationships outside actually strengthens the marriage, right? So get out of the therapy mindset and think about, it. I'm a responsible human being, was responsible for my own well-being, knowing that this will benefit my work, my my certainly my work as a, I'm in a caregiving profession, my family, and so on. Um, and that is your pro and this is getting together with kind, decent people. That's all it is. It is not take, delving into your deep, deepest secrets or traumas. It's getting together in authentic ways to support. Sounds wonderful. I'd love to be in a group of school psychologists from across the country. I would come really love it. Sign up. Come. And you know, you're talking about costs. I mean, we thought about this too. This is a nonprofit. So we ask people for donations where you can get them, but we have a sliding fee scale. So people are not able to read, adjust. Some, uh, some in education use their PD funds, for example. I mean, what, what is more needed in professional development than making sure that you especially you folks, school psychologists, that that's your that's your need right now. It's not to learn how to administer some brand new, new intellect intelligence test. Right? It's it's to keep your you, yourself in a place where you do something that you said earlier, which is so beautiful, you take care of your whole community. Right? So what could be more important than this for your professional development? So you, we talked about time, and I have one less hour of Netflix maybe, um, I understand that, that if anyone says, I never watched Netflix, <laughs> it's just not true. We have the time, if you really put your mind to it. So we talked about the time issue, we talked about the resistance, the fear of exposing oneself, being vulnerable, uh, which is done by the anonymity addressed by, and then there's the please issue, which is really, hey, I do not want any mother to ever cry alone. I, this is. This is something I feel so strongly about. 
mothers give out so much. I mean, fathers do too, but right now my focus is on moms, right? We give out so much. It breaks my heart. I find it just so well heartbreaking to think of a mother crying alone. There are too many of us who have done that, who do that, and that's what I want to address. It's not fair. It's that old question, who mothers want it? That's what AC Groups is all about, is making sure that those who give so much are, get some of that in the best ways possible back to them. So beautiful. Yes. I, I would love to connect myself, but I would also love to hear, you know, recommendations. Like, I mean, just school psychologists collect data. We do, you know, and so sure. I, I would love to to learn how someone fell through the process because I'm so certain that it, you know, that if they kind of collect data on themselves on how they mm -hmm. feel through a, a connection with others, um, and you know, just sharing and leaning on people. Yeah. Um, I bet that, that those outcomes would be really good so that they would soon be able to see. Yeah. That's, again, an excellent question. So I would suggest if you get on our website, acgroups.org, you'll see a bunch of things. One is as a PBS feature that was done a couple of years ago that actually showed me running groups in person and virtually. So you really get a, a sense of how it feels to be uh, in, in a group and feel it, right? Um, there are also testimonials from different people who've been in groups, whether they're pediatricians or educators or psychologists, uh, they tell you why the groups have. One of the things that's so fascinating is not just because of dependability and so forth, but what one woman who is a very senior person in policy, social policy said, you know, these groups keep me accountable for getting what I know I sh should do and I should get. They hold me accountable for doing it because it's in my calendar every week. I have to do it. Otherwise, I'm letting down the group. So I would say go to the website, read all the test. It's not a not, not a big long website. Read the testimonials, look at the videos. I just put up a couple of podcasts. One was the one we were talking about with my former student Eliza, uh, raising good humans, and she talked about mothering mom. One was with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Uh, again, the need to uh, to do these in an organized way for physicians and nurses and so on. So go there, you will feel it. I mean, I, I hope I've described some of the major aspects of what uh, what it feels like, but that'll really give you the flavor. Um, That's a great idea. So it's um, acgroups.org. Yeah, okay. acgroups for, for short for authenticconnectionsgroups.org, acgroups.org. And there's a little application form in there where it says, fill it out, say, well, why are you interested in this group? I mean. Who would you like to be with? Some women will say, people will say, other women, moms going through a divorce or separation or LGBTQ plus people or other Asian moms. Or, so you can even say this is the kind of, kind of uh, moms or teenagers or women my age, uh, grown children. You can say whom you'd like to connect with and we do our best to match things up on our end with uh, um, like-minded like folks. You know, you, you, know, you know about group therapy. Yellum's principles, but talking about a shared experience brings us automatically brings us closer. So here's just a little more organized. So needed. Sounds absolutely wonderful. I'm excited. I, I consider 
the school psych community, uh, uh, you know, a little, well, a very big group that we don't meet, but, uh, but I really, you know, have such a special place in my heart for school mental health folks. So I really hope that they look into this um, and get any support that they need because this has been a really rough at least year and a half, two years. And, um, and I think our work in schools is so important. Most kids who need support um, get it from school and not outside of school. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to be well to help others be well. We need to um, put on our own oxygen mask. And, oh no, uh, somewhat, you need to have your oxygen mask put on for you. Oh, that's right. You see, again, don't do anything yourself. Have, let us do it for you. You need to be tended and nurtured and not be the one doing it yourself. That's what even have this conversation with, with your other you know, your colleagues in school site, who are also a very special group in my heart, is uh, have this conversation. What's this resistance all about? Through COVID, Becca, when I've done webinars and so on, I see 1,500 people here. So, okay, I use that phrase. We're all here between okay and unraveling. Anyone not in this group? Anyone on this, oh no, I'm upbeat? And the answer is always no. How can we be? So this is the empirical data. We all know that, as I said earlier, humanity has been traumatized and we continue to be. So think of it as being a strong individual, uh, proactively sort of protective of yourself and the children whom you serve and take care of, and of course your families. So this is the this is a mature, responsible, kind thing to do, the kindest thing that you, you could do for yourself and for your own. Oh boy, that's beautiful. <laughs> well, on that note, I'm conscious of your time and respectful of your time. Thank you so much for sharing this important message um, on taking care of each other uh, with our community of mental health, uh, school mental health professionals. And before we go, I want to again thank our sponsor, Med Travelers, for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As a leader in school staffing, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that Med Travelers demonstrates with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school site. Dr. Luther, thank you again, and we look forward to continued authentic connection. Oh, yes, yeah, stay in touch, my love. Take care. Bye. Bye.